0: In many places in the world, when things get tough, people stop talking. That's exactly the wrong time.
1: That's when you must communicate. Again, you may not be agreeing, but you need to be clear. This is Benassi Kambanis. Welcome to episode 14 of TCF's World Podcast. Today, I'm joined in Beirut by Dalia Dasake, the director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy at the RAND Corporation, and David Griffiths, independent researcher and former Canadian naval officer. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure.
2: My pleasure. Uh,
1: Today we're going to talk about Middle East security architecture, and I think we're going to launch off into a lot of other things as well. Uh, Dahlia and David were part of uh, TCF's Order from Ashes project, uh, which tried to look at uh, uh, possibilities or in, in, some ways autopsies for, uh, the prospects for security cooperation in the region. Uh, Dahlia, I want to start with you. Um, you, you took a sort of broad look at what's possible, uh, in, in a region that's characterized much more by entropy and conflict than, uh, than by, uh, institution building. Uh, what, what's your diagnosis and what's your, what's your, your diagnosis and your prognosis for, uh, <laughs> Security architecture in the East.
2: <laughs> well, neither are particularly good, but it's not completely bleak. Uh, one of the um, one of the things I did in this in this chapter is to look at the past efforts to try to draw lessons out for today. Uh, At the time we did this, it was a more optimistic environment. We had just had the Iran nuclear deal. We thought we could build on that to think about new forms of security architecture for the Middle East. Um, But that said, the past attempts to create security cooperation in the Middle East um, did not form in particularly good times either. So um, I think one of the things that we've learned is that the tendency in this region is toward competitive alliances and balancing behavior, and it's really hard uh, to build more formal institutions of a cooperative nature. Uh, But we did see, and David will get more in depth into this in the maritime area, we did see some hopeful episodes where we, if we scale back our expectations and we think about more limited types of confidence building in what we call security cooperative forms, not collective security forms, It's possible we did have experiences where we got many actors in the region, not all, but many um, sitting at a table and actually starting to engage in activity where it didn't resolve conflict, but at least it led to the potential of preventing conflict and um, containing the conflicts once they uh, would emerge. So I think, you know, there is some hope. Um, I can get back to some of the lessons we learned because I think we could do it a lot better in the future. Uh, but it's it's not completely hopeless.
1: Well, so before we before we delve into the present, uh, the mm-hmm. bleak present and, <laughs> and, and look at lessons learned uh, going forward, uh, let's talk about one of these cases that you that you're referring to when uh, when rival actors did uh, get into the room uh, and make some headway. David, what was uh, what was the story, the uh, sort of good news story of uh, of maritime Cooperation between otherwise hostile uh, parties in the Middle East.
0: The story began during the Middle East peace process back in 1993. Um, And as part of that, there were two tracks there was the bilateral between Israel and the Palestinians, and there was the multilateral track, which basically brought in everybody that said this is an opportunity to look at the security architecture of the region. Um, One of the areas that was chosen was maritime issues, which is an often uh, neglected area and yet important. Um, And so uh, Canada was asked if it would be the mentor nation for uh, gathering on uh, maritime issues. And essentially we we took two channels. One was prevention of incidents between the navies, um, which is pretty basic. Uh, The other was the humanitarian business of search and rescue. Uh, humanitarian issues at sea, which surely nobody could disagree with. And in fact, there's a very good international precedent for prevention of incidents at sea. There are models out there. Um, in the course of the two years before the Middle East peace process collapsed, we had uh, naval officers, Coast Guard officers from uh, most of the countries in the region. and I think by the time the peace process collapsed for political reasons um, in 1995 96. I believe that the only agreement that had actually been signed off and approved at the technical level was the agreement for the prevention of incidents at sea. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was ready for political signature. All the technical experts were happy with it. That's quite an achievement. And by the way, that should still be in people's filing cabinets somewhere if they ever wanted to pull it out.
1: Wait, and that, and that was Israelis as well as, as Arab states that oh, absolutely. signed off on that? Absolutely. Uh, Israelis, Palestinians.
0: And in fact, if I don't want to digress too much, but it was fascinating when we would actually get the sailors in the room doing practical problems together, uh, where we would put uh, people into a mock-up of a couple of rescue coordination centers to work through a problem. And before long, sailors, who have the, they're this epistemic community. They have a common culture that, that uh, bridges national boundaries. There would be Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians on the mock radio saying, come on, we need another helicopter over right, just working seamlessly. We saw this several times. When you get professionals in a room, and our colleague Peter Jones, who's also written a chapter of this book, would, would refer to it as political space where if politicians say, look, you guys have got this technical expertise within that box, you sort that out. Don't go outside it. Don't deal with politics. Give maritime professionals that professional space, and they will solve a lot of problems. So. That was, that was the Middle East peace process. It collapsed. Um, and in, there was a great concern in Canada particularly, and also in uh, our U.S. colleagues, that all this progress, it would be a pity to throw it away. And so Canada then uh, began a, a Track 2 process called the Maritime Safety Colloquium, um, in which we brought people, many officials, but in a private capacity, together every year to talk about maritime safety. Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, Egyptians... Um, and over the course of between then and 2004, we met every year with two exceptions. One was in 2000. We were to meet in Morocco, but that was the year of the Second Intifada, so we put that aside. And the other was 2003. There was a war going on in Iraq. Other than that, we met every year, um, and again, because it was safety, it was non-political. Safety is an international obligation. We're all required to do it so and and it also gave the opportunity to spin that out to other issues
1: did it ever translate into an actual joint rescue at sea or joint Oil spill cleanup, uh, uh, or any any of these other things, actually coming coming into fruition. The short answer is no, but that's that's too simple. Uh, It
0: built up a lot of not hopeful enough. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, after all, uh, if you're going to send a a, a vessel to do search and rescue into somebody else's waters, there is a political issue. The sailors would have done it, Um, but there was a lot of um, discussion back channel. There was a lot of bilateral and multilateral discussions amongst the alumni. Uh, who did uh, have channels of communications that were open again, as long as they didn't get off into
2: political stuff. And there was a communication center set up uh, in true. Jordan. Um, there were pre-notification agreements. Again, none of these actually had the chance to be implemented, uh, but the you know the concepts are there, and they can be revisited in the, in a in a better political climate. Um, And these, I think what's key here in all of the um, examples that David just gave is that, you know, these states weren't doing it for altruistic reasons. They were doing it for self-interest. You know, there's common ground, and I think that's a a real lesson of of the ACRES process, of broader cooperation, of even the track two dialogues that go on to this day. That involve, by the way, Arab states, Israelis, and even Iranians um, sit in rooms because, not because they're doing each other favors, but because for their own interest of their security they know they need dialogue and they need communication. And that is the key element of these um, security forums is engagement to deal with confidence building, because this region lacks trust. um, And that is exactly the time when you have to build these kinds of forums.
1: And uh, so this communication center in Jordan, does that still exist?
2: Well, it was a regional security center, and but um, I have not been following most recently. But I don't think that any of these things are currently operating outside of the kind of unofficial forms that take place. Track two in all kinds of cities around the world, and some sometimes in the region. Um, some are bilateral, some are multilateral. But um, no, unfortunately, um, the remnants of this process are are pretty much gone um, in terms of official circles.
1: Well, so the, the, I mean, the underlying concept here. Uh, Of these efforts uh, is that if you can find shared self interest, or if you can find technical experts like the maritime folks that David is talking about, or in other cases we've looked at, people who work on nuclear waste uh, or or people who work on, um, let's say, environmental problems, pollution, that you can get some kind of technical channel open, which will then have some kind of spillover effect. We looked. We took this approach because, not because we think it's the best approach, but because it's the only available approach to us today. At a time when Arab-Israeli uh, peace is is not even a viable uh, discussion topic, at a time when even even poorly functioning entities like the GCC are riven by internal conflict, so you don't even have the the stuff that didn't work very well, Arab League, GCC. Oslo process, mm-hmm. those things are all dead or dying, so we, we looked at, at this uh, uh, sort of back door into, if not institution building, at least the confidence building that pre- precedes institution building, and I wonder whether there's actually any basis... Uh, to that hypothesis that technical experts on uh, maritime security, for example, uh, no matter how much they see eye to eye, will ever translate into the politicians who actually need to make a decision to politically commit uh, to changing their behavior, whether there's any reason to think that that, that could happen.
0: I can yeah. give you one example. It's outside the Middle East, but I think it's a good example. Um, there has been since the early 1970s, Uh, an agreement between the United States and then Soviet Union, now Russia, on prevention of incidents at sea. There was an incident in 1998, I believe, in the Black Sea, where American warships steamed through Soviet territorial waters, claiming it was a freedom of navigation exercise. Um, The Soviets, of course, said, well, that's not really valid, so therefore, if you do that, we will send warships to bump you off. And uh, that's exactly what happened. U.S. warships steamed through Soviet waters. Soviet warships uh, went out, and they actually physically bumped the Americans. Now, there was an agreement to prevent incidents at sea in place at the time, a technical agreement. So an incident is not a, a, uh, a failure. An incident is not a violation of a treaty. It's an incident. So both commanding officers were able to say, look, I am doing what my government has ordered me to do. So there was no misunderstanding. There was no question that there was some captain doing a rogue thing. Both sides were able to communicate in real time. Equally important, this agreement called for annual consultations between admirals. And sure enough, of course, the following uh, consultations, the admirals, Soviet and Americans discussed this. Um, And without sort of going into a long story, essentially, the American admiral went home and said, look. Really, we don't gain much by this. In fact, we're making life very difficult for people who are actually quite moderate. And some months later, uh, there was an agreement between Edward Shevardnadze mm-hmm. and uh, James Baker, I think, and mm-hmm. Jackson Hole. Uh, in any event, there was a political agreement that came out of a properly managed incident at sea. Things at sea get complicated. You can't leave things to chance. That's mm-hmm. not management. So to me, that Black Sea incident is a perfect example of what the Middle East needs. Yeah. I might not like you, I might not agree with you, but at least we can respect each other as professionals and I can assure you that I'm doing exactly what my government has told me to do.
2: Right, and you have a line of communication open to do that. And a lot of the uh, Middle East dialogue was modeled on the U.S.-Soviet experience. Equally hostile relationship, of course there were diplomatic relations, so that differed. Uh, but, you know, look, with um, with the friction growing in the Straits of Hermuz and the potential for escalation in the naval arena currently in the Middle East, I think a lot of these arrangements that were forged in acres in the uh, early 1990s are going to come back. Mm -hmm. And I think they'll be relevant and they'll be important and they could seep in to the official track. Yes, the idea of the multilaterals was to build on the technical uh, areas of agreement, draw in the technical experts like David and others, um, help the folks in the region understand how these things can be done and were done successfully in other cases. Um, But ultimately, you have to be realistic. You can't ignore politics in the Middle East. Everything can be politicized. There is no technical issue that can't be politicized. That's why in some cases we saw the erosion of this cooperation even before the Israeli-Palestinian peace process collapsed. So in the Acres process, you actually saw... The um, demise of the process even before 1995, when the the whole process pretty much stopped altogether, uh, because of differences between the Israelis and the Egyptians over the nuclear issue, and that's a long story. But you know that became a very political issue between those two countries, still is to this day. Um, and so I think we need to be realistic about uh, thinking that technical can substitute for conflict ending solutions. It can't. You do need to ultimately resolve the underlying political conflicts in this region to have full stability. But you can build on this technical expertise to at least move the ball forward. You disagree, David? You think it well, can do I don't
0: more. I don't disagree, <laughs> but you know there tends to be, I find in Middle East dialogue a throwing up of hands and saying it's inevitable it will never change. Yeah. That's nonsense. There are there are places in the world that fought each other Bitterly, and are now friends. It takes political will, it takes leadership, which means societal change, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is not impossible. And if I can give one personal example, uh, I served with the European Community Mission in Yugoslavia during the war there. And I remember Serbs, Croats, Muslims saying, How on earth can we ever get over this? And, you know, and I would say, My father spent five years as a prisoner of war in Germany. Mm -hmm. My mother lived under German bombing. I am now serving here some 45 years later with German colleagues. We are friends. That did not happen by magic. It was difficult, difficult decisions, but it was a conscious decision. And I know for my father, he particularly was very emphatic. Look, no German child ever did anything to you. My children would never pick that up. It takes a couple of generations, but it can be done if the will is there.
1: Order from Ashes. New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. This is the Nasi uh, Kambanis in Beirut with Dalia Daseke and David Griffiths. We're back from the break uh, talking about Arab regional security architecture and the Order from Ashes project. When we talk about security architecture, are we talking about conflict management or are we talking about institution building that we envision leading to a real stable peace? Uh, and, you know, David, there's the, a the real limit to the applicability of the the metaphor of the European War to the Middle East, and the main difference is that the war ended, and then after the war was over, a series of things happened. Here, the war is not one war. There's many wars, and many of them are constantly ongoing. Whether you're looking at uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict, you're looking at Iraq, which has been at war almost constantly since 1979, uh, the Yemen, the, the the rivalry between Iran and Saudi, so on and so forth. The, these are. It's not that there's an endless, constant conflict, but there are low-ebb, long-running conflicts always flaring up, and so we're trying we're we're trying to build either institutions or simply conflict management tools. Without a break in the conflict to, to build them during, how do you do that? Is it a fool's errand, or is it, uh, or is the correct way to think about it to say, okay, we're going to try and build conflict management tools, and hope that if and when those conflicts stop, those management tools will grow into uh, somehow more mature uh, uh, and useful fora or institutions for for taking taking a, a ceasefire a step further.
2: I'll be on the more optimistic side for a change. I don't think it's a fool's errand. I mean, in in the case of the Cold War, it it was still a war. It was a Cold War, but it was only detente that led to the the CSCE and then the OSCE um, institutional forum that led to a lot of these engagements that David was talking about, the maritime area and others, between the U.S. and the Soviets. So it is possible to do, even in the midst of conflict, to have these conflict mitigation Mechanisms. Now, I think in the Middle East, and I argue in my chapter, we're going to have to think a little bit differently. We can't just transplant the European model onto the Middle East. It's a very different, it's a different dynamic in this region because of the overlying conflicts that you just outlined, among other reasons. Uh, we are going to have to think about... A less institutional forms and models maybe taking um, uh, some lessons from the Asian experience, either ASEAN regional form or the South Asia regional uh, cooperative forms. Um, you have India and Pakistan engaged in cooperative security uh, types of um, institutions. They're informal. Uh, they're more based on incremental confidence building. That may be a more appropriate model for a region like the Middle East than a more fully developed, European context. So I think, you know, there are plenty of models out there. I think David's right. You need to have the political will and you need the political space to do these things. And what we're lacking right now is that political space. I I think there are potential opportunities. I think we can think about delinking new efforts from the previous efforts in ways that we couldn't in the past. We can delink it probably both from the NPT and the peace process, which is good news for the Middle East. We may be able to make some progress. Uh, but you are going to have to have political will, and I, I think we are short on that right now.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to, to pick up and reinforce that. Um, the The American-Soviet experience was a starting point, and there were some invaluable lessons came out of that which have been picked up around the world. So um, there is a lot of good stuff going on in Asia. Um, there is has been a forum between India and Pakistan for many years with retired admirals. and But the theme is, is also there. These are not tree-hugging peace lovers. These are admirals that have actually fought each other. Um, But it's a sense that our children and our grandchildren should not have to put up with this. It's starting to think about future generations. So, no, it's not a fool's errand. It's not easy. Um, And ultimately, the Middle East will have to form its own solutions. And one of the things, uh, Peter Jones, who also wrote a chapter in this book, and I used to do a number of seminars on on prevention of incidents at sea. And we would always say, look look at the principles, but you have to build your own solution to your own area, which is always different. But don't throw out the lessons that can be drawn. So, yeah, it's a global issue with lots of experience, and we can build on it.
1: One of the unique... uh... Uh, deficiencies in this region's architecture is that there aren't even use uh, usable platforms on which adversaries can communicate with each other. Exactly. So we we see this, I mean, in just in the Syria war and the Iraq war, where e- each time uh, belligerents w- actually want to reach out to each other and, and de-escalate or figure out some way to talk. And then we see this even with Israel and Hezbollah over Lebanon, each time they have to cast about for an ad hoc channel. Maybe one day it's the Swiss or a German diplomat. Maybe another day uh, Bashar al-Assad is able to be a message passer between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq. I mean, these, these, these very uh, improvised uh, channels. And that is, is terrifying in a region in which hundreds of thousands of people are being killed in these violent conflicts. Uh, and, and so we end up even in a, in a situation where sides might want to talk, uh, even even for a prisoner swap or for a temporary ceasefire, they don't have a, a default way uh, to do it. So from this research, can we learn or propose some kinds of, of standing mechanisms that can help just this basic uh, uh, conflict management uh, tool, which, which could save lives, could uh, uh, avoid accidental escalations and uh, uh, maybe accidental wars?
2: Yeah, I think um, we're going to have to think about multilateral solutions because multilateral forums give states the cover where they could then engage in some side discussions. And they're very useful from that perspective. That's happened before. It can happen again. Um, You need to get. All actors in the room, that may not be possible right now with the kind of the focus in the region of containing Iran is so strong. Uh, But previous efforts show if you exclude Iran, it's going to be the spoiler. You cannot. Iran is involved in every conflict in this region. It's going to be involved in solutions. So you need a form. It's probably going to have to involve extra regional powers. They're part of the region now. They're de facto regional players. Russia and the United States are involved in these conflicts. Um, But that will also provide cover. So if it's a multinational form, um, it is possible. You already see it through U.N. auspices. That won't be the right way probably in the Middle East. Um, But I think if you can find a converging area of interest, I would suggest in today's context thinking on the lines of the refugee crisis, for example. Migration issues affects every single country, Arabs and non-Arabs alike, the, the Turks, the Iranians. Of course, the Arab states are filling the brunt of the Syrian war. If you just get a mechanism, an issue where there's converging interests, you get the political will of external powers to start it in some way, even starting informally or track one and a half. It gets players in a room. That, if it can be done on a sustained basis, is a way in which parties who are facing a direct bilateral crisis have a mechanism where they may be able to engage each other quietly in ways they could not if that multilateral form did not exist. That's just one example. It's going to be very hard to do in this current context, but I think it's possible.
1: Dahlia, did you imagine uh, that the JCPOA framework might have been such a forum before it ended up yeah. being uh, so so directly challenged?
2: I think a lot of people were hopeful, although I was a little bit more on the skeptical side of that. I, I Just seeing things in Washington, I think... Um immediately after the JCPOA, the political climate was such that it was like, well, we gave this to Iran, now we have to find ways to contain Iran. So I think, and this was a bipartisan issue. This wasn't a Republican versus Democratic. You saw plenty of people in in Hillary Clinton's campaign um, who were very tough on Iran. So I don't know if we could have. It certainly would have been a better opening than the current context, which looks like we're moving to the um, collapse of this agreement altogether. Uh, But it might have. And if we can get back or at least salvage this agreement, there might be a way to also focus on some of the environmental issues that we mentioned earlier. Nuclear safety is a good one um, with concerns about uh, the potential proliferation of at least um, enrichment programs across the region. Uh, This is an area that all players you can start on a very technical level uh, might have an interest in engaging in. So it's possible even If we can salvage this agreement, or even if it collapses, um, it's possible.
0: I use the term track, two with caution, because it means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. And like every other label, once you have a label, you get political scientists and politicians who all start uh, uh, limiting things for that. But but two examples, one from Asia. Uh, There is a forum over about 13 years of retired admirals who met each year outside the region to talk as individuals but they are influential individuals. And over the course of more than a decade, these folk would uh, address issues from their perspective, but they had enough influence they could go back through their own chains of command and um, advocate and say, look, we never actually thought about dealing with the others this way. And there are actually government-to-government agreements between India and Pakistan that have grown out of that form, private but uh, influential individuals. I could see that as a Middle East model. The other is the maritime safety colloquium that followed the Middle East peace process, in which for, what, seven years, uh, maritime professionals from across the region, Navy, Coast Guard, port authorities, uh, uh, energy companies uh, from across the region, got together and talked about issues of maritime safety and something that is everyone's obligation, Um, You know, it's not a nice-to-do thing to keep the ocean clean. It's our life support system. It's not a nice-to-do thing to keep the fish alive. That's what we feed on. So uh, there has been a forum. It worked extremely well. um, And it's there on the shelf. I mean, it could be reconstituted if there were political will. There isn't. But I could see, for example, something like that forum of senior people. And universities are a wonderful resource, You don't have to have a negotiation. A university can do a study to see what might be done and bring in people who are actually influential and give them that forum. So there are lots of mechanisms if there's a will to do it.
2: And communications is another one, Uh, re-establishing or uh, establishing a hotline. That was a very uh, major point of discussions in the early 90s of the communications network is setting up a hotline, which gets to that conflict management issue that you were raising. Um, I think those are doable. I mean, you're seeing a lot of that happening now in Syria with these kind of deconfliction uh, agreements um, not working particularly well at the moment. Um, but that does create the precedent for, and the need for, having communication uh, networks and hotlines between the adversaries in these conflicts.
0: I would like to really re emphasize that one as well it's communications. Mm-hmm. There have been studies that basically say, if you look at just about any war that's ever happened, somewhere there was a misperception in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, In many places in the world, when things get tough, people stop talking. That's exactly the wrong time. That's when you must communicate. Again, you may not be agreeing, but you need to be clear. And I'll give you an example, obviously not immediately applicable to the Middle East, but it's a precedent. Canada and Spain almost got shooting at each other over fish. Canada and Spain. (laughs) But with, nicer, nicer but, yeah, but with very robust rules of engagement, with warships facing off at sea. However, the commanding officers actually knew each other from NATO. They could communicate. Here's what I'm doing. The, there was actually communications between the naval headquarters daily to ensure that there was no misunderstanding. It wasn't talking behind government's backs. It was making sure that what was happening was in accordance with what governments wanted and that uh, the other side understood precisely what the position was that helped in defusing the crisis. It also had a humanitarian aspect. At one point, the Spanish ship, which was very small, was having difficulty in rough seas. And the Canadian was able to say, look, let the Canadian admiral was able to say to the Spanish admiral, let your guy steer a comfortable course. We'll stand back and we'll resume this when uh, you know when things get uh, smoother. But communication can be done. It's vital. And we proved it, I think, both in the Middle East peace process and through the uh, the Maritime Safety Colloquium. If there's a that epistemic network, people can talk, and you have to be able to remove the uncertainties. If I'm going to bump you, or or I'm going to steam through waters that you claim is yours, well, fine. But I'll tell you about it. If we trust each other's honesty, that's the thing. It's the habits, and this is where I think that sea things are are useful because it's less in the public eye. Sometimes you can set precedents at sea that then can spill over into land. I'm not being Pollyannaish, but there are a lot of opportunities here. I'm-
1: And and we do have a a whole cadre, a generation of of individuals with expertise that have emerged from this plethora of track two processes. And uh, and the question at this point is, can those people and their expertise be harnessed uh, either under some institutional aegis or simply as a a safety valve in some of uh, the dangerous uh, flare points that we were in. Do you have a final thing to say for? Well,
2: I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, and not to put a damper on this, but um, you know, one of the one of the limitations, though, of, of all of these excellent, um, I, I think, initiatives at this time that can be probably reinstituted is it did not involve Iran and it didn't involve Iraq. Iraq will be easier now, um, but um, the Iranians are involved in some of the track two efforts, but they were not involved in the former formal uh, multilateral peace process. Um, And that's where we really have to have the focus now, because we can't think about any kind of uh, forget about institutionalized, even informal back channel. You have to have the Iranians at the table, especially given the potential flashpoints in the region for escalation, pretty much all involve Iran. Um, It's going to be a lot easier now to get Israelis and Arabs, interestingly, talking to each other. That's probably less of the issue than it was in the past. Of course, the resolution of the Palestinian conflict would be a big boost for that. But a lot of this can go on even without it. And we're seeing that already happening. Uh, But the Iranian challenge, I think, is going to be the big one.
1: And and the the fruits of that omission are clear in all the major conflicts in the region where none of the fora, even the makeshift ones that exist, involve all the belligerents. So you can't even manage uh, uh, the war in Iraq or the war in Syria or the war in Yemen if you don't have the primary belligerents uh, communicating with each other. Uh, thanks uh, for for your uh, great uh, discussion. This is Thanasi Kambanis. Uh, I'm in Beirut with Dalia Dasake and David Griffiths. Uh, Thank you both uh, for your time. Pleasure.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: And uh, you can read their fantastic reports and the others on TCF's website at tcf.org. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit TCF.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.